Welcome to the Or Halev podcast with Rabbi James Jacobson Mazels. So, what I want to start talking tonight about, and then probably talk about for the next few weeks, is uh, Kaddish, is the prayer that we say, Kaddish. And um, it's been on my mind a lot because I've been saying Kaddish this year, as many of you know, for my mother. And as I've been saying it, I've really been asking the question what is the nature of this practice? of this prayer that we say as a mourner but also just in general that we say it in the midst of our prayer services all the time we say it at the end of our prayer services all the time what's the nature of this practice which is the Kaddish and how is the nature of this Kaddish practice which is what I've been seeing and working with this year really thanks to a beautiful suggestion of a friend of mine Jordan Bendenapel um, is really the practice we're doing right here so that's what we're going to explore Kaddish our mindfulness practice how they work together, what they mean, how we open to them. So, in order to talk about that, I just want to briefly, not spend too much time, but talk for a moment about the nature of language and prayer for a second. And it's relevant because it's the same way and nature of the way that we use language in this practice of cultivating the mind at certain times. Right. So sometimes we do non-discursive practice, like mindfulness, which is observing. Sometimes we do discursive meditation practices. For instance, some of you on retreat with me have done blessing practices, right? Some of you have done maybe in the British tradition metta practices, loving kindness practices, right? Last year we worked on a different kind of loving kindness practice for those of you who are here, right? We did it for a number number of months. We started off with a, a love practice each time, which was sort of an evocation of love practice. Each one using words, right? Not as communication and not as a way to pass information as any way, but words as performative entities to cultivate certain states and ways of being, right? So we would use words as ways to actually incline the mind in certain kind of directions. I might say, may I be blessed with compassion, right? And I'm evoking that compassion, but I'm also trying to incline the mind and the heart and soul to the presence of compassion. At the same time, I might bring up a memory or an image of compassion, right? And so I use language in a way, and I think that's the general way. It's a much larger discussion. We're not going to talk about it here, but just out there. And think in general, that's the way that our language works in prayer, right? That is, we use language in prayer, and that's why prayer is repetitive. That's why it's rhythmic. That's why it, it evokes and processes all these qualities. We use it as a way to affirm certain kinds of dispositions and states. Like um, Abraham Joshua Heschel said, every evening we recite, he creates light and makes dark. Twice a day we say he is one. What is the meaning of such repetition? A scientific theory, once it is announced and accepted, does not have to be repeated twice a day. (laughs) The insights of wonder must be constantly kept alive. Since there is a need for daily wonder, there is a need for daily worship. So we're doing with our language in our prayer practice and our contemplative practice of language is that we're really trying to cultivate these states and ways of being in the mind and the heart and the body. And so we're trying to bring something into existence rather than talk about it. The way that Pizetzner says it, he says, you can just tell somebody there's a great light. There's a light out there somewhere. There's a light. It's nice. It's a cool light. Right? (laughs) You should check it out. But... When we pray and we speak about light, like Or Chadash Atzion Ta'ir, may a new light shine on Zion, we are actually bringing that light into being. 
the aim of our purpose of our language and prayer is not to talk about something that exists out there, but to perform that act and bring that reality into being and into our hearts in that very moment. And so my question in that sort of background and thinking about how we use language in contemplative practice is what is the Kaddish meant to perform, right? What is it meant to do to us? What is the repetition of these particular words? How are they supposed to affect us? And it's fascinating, of course, the Kaddish, because as with many prayers in our tradition in different places, it's very repetitive, right? Especially in its core forms. Yitkadal v'yitkadash shemerapa. May the great name be enlarged and sanctified. Kishtabach v'ipa'ar v'itroman v'itnaseh v'itadar v'italeh v'italav, right? All we just said was basically the same thing over and over again, right? Praise, sanctified, elevated, etc., etc., again and again and again and again and again. The great name. There are some other parts to it, and we'll get into that as well. But there's this basic, basic push of expanded, open, enlarged, sanctified, elevated, 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 elevated. May this great name be. And my friend Jordan, coincidentally, a few months before my mother passed away, said, suggested to me that the Kaddish was really about expansiveness. It was about calling upon ourselves and the divine to get bigger and larger and greater. And that we do it so much, the Kaddish says, that we do it beyond any blessing or song, beyond any language. That is, we keep on expanding, we use this language to expand ourselves, to get wider and wider and wider and wider, to we actually expand beyond the place of language can take. So that's what I've been working with, right? And then we say, forever and ever and ever. Right? So even time-wise, we're going to expand that eternity beyond, beyond, beyond. So that's what I've been working with. I've been working with the Kaddish's expansiveness. And that's all intro, really. Now we're getting to the actual stuff, which is, why? Right? I mean, who cares? Like, what's the point of Kaddish being about expansiveness? It's all very nice, and maybe it sounds nice theoretically to talk about going beyond language, etc., and all that, but what does it actually mean? Like, what does it mean when I'm saying Kaddish? What does it mean in terms of this practice? What is the practice of expansion? How does that actually affect our hearts and minds right here in our practice? And I, I think there are, are many pieces of it, but I want to start with this piece of mourning because that's what I've been experiencing. And I think it's no coincidence that this prayer of expansiveness is given to those in mourning and pain because it's in that expansiveness, it's in that getting larger that we discover our own healing. We discover our own capacity to heal and we discover our own capacity to truly hold all of that which is arising. It's also, I think, on the side, and we'll get back to it, why we end every prayer, every section of the prayer service with the Kaddish. Because it's only the way we can hold all of that multiplicity together, right? There's so much which happens in a, in a prayer service if we're actually connecting to it. There's joy, there's sorrow, there's excitement, there's opening, there's so much happening. And there are ways in which we try to hold it together, right, in our lives. And we try to hold it together, what we actually mean is like we're desperately putting our fingernails into everything in our lives, <laughs> trying to hold it to our chest. We're desperate, we're tense, we're not really holding it together, we're sort of desperately trying to not fall apart, right? That's one way we try to hold it together. You may have said that to somebody at some point, I'm just trying to hold it together. Sometimes we think the way of holding things together is making everything the same. We want to have some resolution, some way it all works out, some way it all makes sense together, right? But we know the reality of our lives is, or I'll suggest, you can check out if this is true in your own experience, we can't hold it all together like that, right? When you hold it all together like that, first of all, it's really painful, right? It's really unpleasant. And second of all, at some point it falls apart, right? Because you can't live in the tense, fingers clenched, 
desperately grasping to all everything around you at every moment, right? It's no way to live. And we can't live in the other way as well. That is, sometimes things resolve. It's lovely. Sometimes it all makes sense together. But sometimes it doesn't, right? It doesn't resolve, and there's no neat ending, and there's no ribbon, and there's no gold at the end of the rainbow. And it doesn't all work. And all the pieces of our life don't always work and make sense and are all lovely together. Sometimes you're just sitting with the difficulty. And when we expand, when we're yit gadal, when we get bigger, what we actually do is create a vessel which is wide enough to hold the truth of the loss, the truth of our helplessness to save a loved one, the feelings of despair and anger and grief and denial and fear and bitterness which arise. We're big enough to hold it all. That expansiveness does not tell us to get over the loss, right? But it stops us from getting lost in the loss, right? It's that sweet place in between. And I'm talking about it in the morning because that's my experience, but it's about every pain and difficulty that arises in our life, right? We have a tendency. One is to be like, get over it, push it away. I'm not really dealing with it. It's not really there. I should be beyond that already. Another way is we just get lost in it. So I'm lost in the, in the thoughts about it and the blaming that person, the blaming myself and whatever else is happening for me. And the practice is, can we just get wide enough? Can we create this tremendous field in which whatever is arising can be? Because in that field, it's all okay. In that field, it's fundamentally all right. In that field, we can hold it all without rejecting any part of our experience and without getting trapped in any aspect of our experience, right? We don't identify with any of the little parts. We identify to the extent that we identify at all with the container with this great container, with the great name, the expansive great name, which holds it all. And so the Kaddish in that way, for me, helps me hold the truth of our bereavement, the truth of both the majesty and the horror of the world, with compassion and love. It lets us know in a felt way that though we may feel overwhelmed and helpless, or caught in the stress of life and work, or simply having poured out our hearts in prayer and listed all our many unfulfilled desires and needs, There is something larger in which we can hold that experience. There's something wider. There's something greater. On the Yom Kippur retreat we just had, I talked a little bit about our practice of mindfulness as a mikveh, as this, you know, this pool of water that we hold all our impurities in and allow them to arise and be purified. Not because we get rid of them, but just because we hold them in something greater, because they're batel b'shishim, as we say in Kashrut, right? It's just, it's just wider. It's just expansive. And I feel the same way, there's something true in that way about Kaddish as well. So it creates that expansiveness, that space to hold everything which arises, to hold everything which arises. And to stop ourselves, it's interesting. It's like, if you get some meat and it drops into a milk pot, right? And it's more than a 60th of a pot, it colonizes the whole pot, basically, right? The whole pot becomes not kosher, right? So even if it was only a 50th of the pot, right? Still, the whole pot becomes non-kosher, right? You're in trouble. And I don't know about your experience, but my experience is something. That's what happens. It's like, I'm in life. I'm having some experience. All of a sudden, something happens. Anger arises. And all of a sudden, anger colonizes my mind, right? It's like only one piece of my experience. It's not even necessarily always the, like, oh, that moment is there. And all of a sudden, that's what my mind's about. And that's what my heart's about at that moment. It's like nothing's else happening now. Only thing happening now is resentment, right? That's what's happening. And all of a sudden, my whole being just got colonized by this one piece. It's like, really? But yeah, really, right? <laughs> just got colonized, my whole being, by that one piece. And the metaphor for me as I was thinking about it, 
yesterday, it was just like it's so strong. That sense of it's so easy. One little thing enters our experience and it takes over the experience. And all of a sudden our experience is lost. And like, we're not kosher. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's it. We've just lost ourselves. We've just gotten completely lost, right? The Ari, Yitzhak Luria says, he says, you know, the experience of anger, he says, great imagery for it. So sometimes it's like a demon has come and possessed you and torn your soul. <laughs> and there's something about that experience of possession, which I think is quite evocative and true. It's like when you get like really angry, it's like, who is this person and who's taken over me, right? Like, what happened to the me I know? And in other emotions too, sometimes we can feel sometimes like, it's like, well, what happened? That, that's not me, but I've been like completely possessed by this thing. And all of a sudden, there's no me, there's no mindfulness, there's no space around it. I'm just gone. Right? And I'm lost in whatever it is. The anger, the resentments, the bitterness, the jealousy, the confusion, the self-blame. Whatever it is that I'm lost in, I'm lost, right? And I'm off to the races and I'm running. And there are various ways we can deal with that experience. But what I'm talking about here is a relationship of expanding around that difficulty. Getting so expansive and so wide that all of a sudden, oops, it's not colonizing us anymore. It's like, oh, I'm just so wide. It's like, oh, it's just there. It's just a piece of my experience. And I don't actually have to be lost in it. I don't have to be lost in it anymore, right? Because I've seen it and there's all the spaciousness around it. I don't need to be lost in anyone. And what's extraordinary about that, I would have been finding also with the Kaddish these last few months, half a year almost now, is that as we expand, not only, unsurprisingly, does it stop us from being colonized, no longer trapped in that experience, which is sort of our first goal, but it also allows the space for whatever is present to arise as strongly and as fully as it needs to. Right? So not only am I not trapped in the anger, but now I'm not in this bizarre dance of both trapped in the anger and pushing away the anger at the same time, right? But there's spaciousness to be like, oh, anger, I see you, and you can totally be here. Oh, sadness and loss, I see you, and you can totally be here. There's just space for you to be here, and I can cry, and I can feel it, and I can feel it because I can have the stability to know that I won't be overwhelmed by it, right? I don't just... I hope that was clear, but I just want to say it again, right? I can feel it because I have the stability and spaciousness to know that I won't be overwhelmed by it. Because if I don't know, not here, but here, that I won't be overwhelmed by it, some part of myself is going to be like, no way. <laughs> not letting that in. Like, forget about it, right? It can go somewhere else. Right? It can go sit in the corner. It can go do something else. There's no space for that because that's too scary. But if I can stop and really notice here, oh, there's space, there's space for this to come, and to play, and to be here, and that's okay, it can be all right. So these wonderful stories in Shivchei Abesht, the in praise of the Baal Shem Tov, it's the first collection of Hasidic tales. There's a whole series of stories there, in other ways, about the Besht's encounters with demons. There's all kinds of demons, and demons are doing all kinds of stuff, and making people sick, and giving people problems. And the Besht will come to the demons, and it'll be like, oh, that's okay, you can live in the attic. Right? <laughs> you don't have to like kill the demons, right? But you'd be like, you can't keep plaguing these people, but I'll give you space. You can be in the attic, right? Or here's this nice well. You can hang out next to the well. There's lots of space for you here, right? So we don't have to get rid of the demons. We don't have to kill them. We don't have to banish them. But we can say there's space for you which isn't a space of colonizing me, right? There's space for you and there's spaciousness around me. And in that spaciousness, there's a lot of healing. So now I want to pause for a moment.
want you to turn to somebody next to you and just, we're going to take a minute, like 30 seconds each, share with that person something, totally up to you how much you share, right? Something you would like to create spaciousness around. Okay? Something you feel like, oh, I can see it. Sometimes I'm trapped in it, right? I'm getting lost in it, I'm resisting it. I would like to create some spaciousness around that thing. Okay? Take a minute, 30 seconds each, turn to the person next to you, introduce yourself, say hi, you don't have to know the person. Say thank you to your partner and come back for a moment. So I'd like to invite just two people, other times with other people, we'll do things which are more out there as well, to just share the thing they want to expand around. Any volunteers? I know it's hard, it's scary in some ways. My name is Gabriella. Thank you. Yeah, good. Um, so I, I'm in a very transitory part of my life. I just graduated college. I just got married. I just came here for the year. A lot of like settle. Thank you. A lot of <laughs> a lot of transitions, but also some of it is temporary. No. <laughs> 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 rabbinical school so we're going to go back to New York and then they're going to be a couple years there and then we're going to move somewhere else and then and so I'm trying to I'm very resentful of, of being in this part of life which I think is very natural to have you know transitions for a while after, before you settle into anything um, so I don't know how I'm going to get there but I would love to, to open you know, around that thank you Anybody else? Another person? It can be very short. It can be a word. What you're trying to expand around? Um, Name? I mean, it's what you talked about. But Name? I'm Jacob. Hi. Um, yeah, just like, I'll be going about my day and like feeling really good, and then one little thing, or it might not be little, will make me angry. And all the like goodness that was leading into that can be gone. Hmm. And, and I like know when it's happening, too. Um, so for me, that, that's my thing. Thank you. So great intentions. You can all notice whatever our intentions were. And then as they sort of both mentioned, right, for some reason, this is actually hard, right? <laughs> you know, interestingly, because we know it's good for us, right? We know it's going to be better than the other option. And as Jacob just said, which you know, anybody who's tried this will identify with, sometimes I even see it happening. I know it would be better if I did the other thing. And still I'm doing it, right? It's like I'm even mindful enough to see the process and I'm still not quite mindful enough to not be trapped in it. Right? And it is hard because first we have this desire to identify with the suffering in some ways, with being a victim or a victimizer, to getting lost in the story about what they did wrong or I did wrong or what happened wrong and the blame, because it makes us feel safe in some way, right? Because the blaming itself, bizarrely enough, um, makes us feel a little bit calmer, a little bit more secure, because at least we know who's wrong, right? <laughs> and second, because it's just scary to be with whatever that thing is that we're trying to expand around, right? The instability, the anger... I was thinking about just the like resistance to jumping in 
like just like I want to expand around the like the holding back, right? It's like all those things hurt to be in their presence, and they feel scary, and they feel like they could eat us, and so it's hard to have the courage and presence of mind to expand around them. And so the kaddish and our practice is a way to do that practice of expanding around it. And what I want to finish with is one concrete way that you can do that. A concrete tool you guys can try out this week. You can tell me how it went next week when we meet again. <laughs> how it works in terms of expanding. So one tool that I use sometimes when I'm trying to expand around something is that I will actually notice the thing, whatever it is, like the anger, and I will breathe in, and my intention, the words I'll say will in, I will say I'm breathing in infinitely. I feel like I'm infinitely expanding my lungs, infinitely taking in the air of the world, creating like infinite space around the thing, and then I'll say, breathe out infinitely. It's like I'm infinitely filling the world with my breath, right? So in some sense, there's no separation between the inside and the outside, but in both places, I'm trying to just cultivate that sense of expansiveness, continually expand around what's happening, and that sense of whatever that, that tight place is, it's just sitting in infinite space. It's just sitting in infinite space. And in that infinite space, oh, there's some freedom. There's some possibility to change. So that's the beginning. We're going to keep exploring this possibility of change around expansiveness, around the cottage. We're going to get some other pieces. Um, and for now, um, we're going to take a few minutes to do some questions and answers. So experiences people want to share, questions they have uh, for the next few minutes, the floor is open. Hi. Can you say your name? Hello, I'm Sarah Hi. Hi. Um, what you said, make yourself bigger so that the thing gets smaller. But what yeah. prevents that thing from just colonizing the bigger you? Yeah. So the thing doesn't get smaller. This is important. Well, anyway. Exactly. Um, what prevents it basically is that as you expand, when your mindfulness is present, mm. and you know I'm going to say this, but it's really just you have to experiment with it and have the felt sense of it, because otherwise it's just a bunch of words, right? Um, is that when we're actually present with it and expanding around it? and especially holding it in compassion, the compassion is key there, then it doesn't take us over. Partially because the mindfulness is present, right? So the mindfulness can see it and recognize that I am not it, right? It's there, it's part of this experience I'm having, but I'm not it. And second of all, that is the breath and the compassion gives it a sense of safety. It's just like, you know, it's like a crying child, right? So the child starts crying, how do you develop compassion for it? No, how do you, how do you define compassion? Yeah. Like, Here, compassion is caring about that experience. For instance, I might say it for myself. Often I'll say something like, ouch, that hurts. Or I really care about your suffering. If I'm sort of talking to it as a third person, I might just say, I really care about my suffering. Right? So I'm just like noticing and holding myself and saying, oh yeah, that's really hard. I care about you. I'm with you. And again, it's just like a child. It's like if there's a child freaking out and we freak out, then we allow the child's freaking out to colonize us, right? And that's when we get lost. But if we have the presence of mind to be present with that kid, then you just be like, oh, come on here, sweetie. I'm just going to hold you to my chest. And you can cry, and that's okay. I don't have to freak out. I see you're crying. And as I'm present and calm and stable and loving with you, and letting you know that it's okay to cry, not present and calm and saying, don't cry, but it's like, oh, yeah, oh, that's really upsetting. I hear you. It's really hard. Then the kid will stop crying because they feel safe and secure and warm and they've been able to express and go through whatever it is they need to express and go through. So we basically do the same things with ourselves. Right? And that expansiveness is just the holding of that child in that space. Um, yeah. Um, I really loved what you said because it helped me to understand what happened to me yesterday. 
I had a, quite a disturbing and upsetting experience. And somehow, to my great joy, instead of dropping with it and being lost in it and having it ruin my entire day or week, um, it, it took up a, a part, I gave it a space, a part, and then the rest of the time I was able to just be present. And, and I asked, I'm asking myself while you were talking, well, what enabled me to do that? And I think it's um, very hard to do it sort of the first time. I think the only reason that that was able to happen is because of years of meditation practice and also um, co positive cognitive statements to myself. Yes. Everything you're saying about like, you know, I love you, I care about you, are things that I want to be saying to myself um, always in the back of my mind and not just when I'm upset, more when I'm upset, but like if I can develop an orientation like that and develop breath, then those two things I think can provide the largeness that when the thing comes, because in the moment when the thing comes up, we don't have the presence of mind really to do a lot of practice because it's right. very strong. It has to have been, we have to build a clean. It has to have been built over the course of time. I mean, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, man, practice. Right? <laughs> right? But that's right. It's like you have to practice. You have to practice. Because Ethner says, he says, so he says, you know, in this path of a spiritual warrior, you can't practice in the battle, right? <laughs> you have to train for the battle. But right? you don't send a warrior into battle without training. you got to train. And that's what we're doing. Exactly. So you sit down. You sit. You sit. See if you can come up. You expand around them. You learn, you habituate this muscle of the mind and heart to expand around what's arising. The yeah. question is not about... People say their names as they're asking questions. Sorry. I'm David. Um, so it's, a, it's a general question about practice coming yeah. in, but um, sometimes, not always, I, I, I have this experience of um, like my, my body feeling disconnected, like, my, like literally like my hands feeling like they're... Yeah. Ten feet down, and my head mm -hmm. starting to float up, or something like that. Yeah. And um, you know, gone different ways. Some, you know, earlier in my practice, I just sort of let my head float, and that wasn't great. But and and, um, <laughs> and then trying to really sort of like, okay, stay grounded, stay grounded, stay grounded, stay grounded. But that's you know, that also feels like a um, like a discursive. So yep. I'm just wondering. Yep. Good. The Great question. Not uncommon. Floaty experience. Feel like you're floating or levitating or things are sort of airy or feeling disconnected. Um, what I'd suggest is you anchor with the feeling of the bottom on the cushion or the chair or whatever you're sitting. So instead of being with the breath, just bring your attention to like, what does it feel like for my sit bones? If you're right there. Uh -huh. Boom. There. It's like you're just bringing your attention to it. It doesn't have to be like, be grounded, be grounded. It doesn't have to be kind of frantic anyway. It's just like, oh. Now I'm focusing on the feeling of the sit bones on the cushion. Mm -hmm. And usually that just brings that feeling of ground. It's like, oh yeah, I'm stable, I'm here, I'm right there. And to the extent that it's not, you just notice that. It's like, oh, notice feeling spacey right now. It's like, actually, it's actually okay just trying to be present with it and not sort of getting lost in it. Mm -hmm. And also not thinking that it's anything special, right? It's just like, just spaciness right now, just floating right now. Yeah. That's all right as well, right? Any last question? Yeah, and then, uh, Jacob, uh, <laughs> um, you suggested this idea when, like, in everyday life, things come up, like judgment, for example, labeling it. Yeah. And I've been doing that, and I, you know, it's good, I like it. But I'm wondering, like, the reason it works for me is because I'm, like, saying it, and then I can't think about the actual situation. Is that mm. the point? No, that's not the point. 
although that is helpful in some ways, and it's part of the ways why labeling can be helpful, because it takes, it takes up some of that discursive space. Mm-hmm. The point is that it points <laughs> to the thing you're trying to pay attention to. Right? It's like, look at the bottle. Right? That's what's so the labeling. It's like judgment, judgment, judgment. It's trying to bring my attention to the fact that judgment's there and allowing me to see it. And it does help take on that, some of that discursive space. So it does kind of, it's harder for the mind just to keep thinking at that moment, which is good. Sorry. Um, and more importantly, it brings the mind to the presence of judgment. So then you, it's important to actually observe the judgment and observe things like, ooh, judgment is painful. Right? Like, that's what judgment feels like in the body. That's what judgment feels like in the shoulders. Like, that's what judgment feels like in the heart. Right? And then, to notice, am I judging the judgment? Am I like, ugh, judgment again, what's wrong with me? Right? <laughs> and then you can just be like, oh, more judgment. <laughs> right? Judgment, judgment, judgment. Hello, judgment. Welcome in. Nice to see you. Right? Like, it doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be a whole thing. But it just allows you to do that. Right? So you want to use it as a pointer. That's important. It's not, the words themselves are not what you're trying to focus on. The labeling is just trying to bring the mind to the thing you're paying attention to. And then just like here, you're trying to pay attention to is as open, expansive, present, loving a way as you can. Make sense? Great. You've been listening to the Or Halev podcast with Rabbi James Jacobson Mazels. For more information about Or Halev and how to stay up to date with our podcasts, visit the website at orhalev.org.